You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Hey, glad you decided to tune in today. Happy Easter. You know, we have had a terrific response to our resource that we made available here a couple weeks ago to people that want to get a better handle on where things may be going financially and economically speaking. Uh, We have a webinar that we'll be holding again this week, Thursday. We'll do an 11 a.m. webinar and a 4 p.m. webinar on the same day. We are doing two webinars same day because we do have technology restrictions and we have had a terrific response to the webinars. If you'd like to learn about a tool that you might consider using in today's environment, in your investments to potentially protect your nest egg, I would encourage you to attend the free webinar. You can go get more information at rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. The website again is rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. Hey, also joining me on today's program in the second segment will be Mr. Michael Pento. Michael is a frequent television commentator. He is founder founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. He'll be joining me and he'll be explaining why he believes stag, stagflation is unavoidable. And he'll explain that again in segments two and three today. You know, in this segment, I want to talk a bit about trade-offs. And given the current coronavirus situation, there are no solutions. There are really only trade-offs. Now, in this segment, I want to talk about these trade-offs. And you might ask, why am I going down this road on today's program? And I believe it's because we need to have the conversation. Now, I walk down this admittedly controversial road on today's program, understanding full well that we will all have a different perspective on these matters. And again, also fully understanding there are no solutions, just trade-offs that force us to consider the best of two bad outcomes. So let me start with the numbers. As I record this program on Friday, April 10, according to NBC News, there have been about 17,000 deaths from coronavirus in the United States as of April 10. Now, being a naturally curious person, I was wondering how that number compared to total deaths that occurred prior to the coronavirus. To find my answer, I went to the United Nations World Population Prospects Report, which told me that on average, 7,452 people die every day in the United States total from all causes. 7,452 people a day. Now, for those of you born after flashcards, that's about 220,000 deaths per month. Now, NBC News reported the first coronavirus death in the United States in the state of Washington on February 29. Now, I completely understand that deaths from the virus increase exponentially as time passes, so let's just assume that these 17,000 deaths occurred over the past three weeks. That's a little under 6,000 deaths per week from coronavirus. Let's just call it 6,000. And again, please understand, I'm not trivializing or intending to minimize those numbers. I'm just providing them for perspective. Now, we as a country expect about 55,000 people to die each week. In fact, if you go to the CDC's website, you find 
that the week of February 8th, there were 56,713 people that passed on. And when you look at the total number of people each week that have died in the United States, as one, one might expect, there's some seasonal bias. And the week of March 21, there were 48,612 people that died as the coronavirus kicked in. So according to the CDC's own data, the number of weekly deaths has been declining as deaths from coronavirus have been rising. Now, don't take my word for this. When the podcast version of this program is posted tomorrow on Monday at 5, there will be a link to the CDC site so you can check out the data for yourself. Now, again, this is serious. I'm not trivializing any death. However, the policies being pursued to contain coronavirus are also pretty serious. Now, I understand these policies are having a positive effect and the curve is flattening. And my point is not that we shouldn't be doing this. I'm just suggesting there are trade-offs. The New York Times reported on Thursday of this week that according to a government report, 6.6 million more workers lost their job. Now we have about 17 million unemployed, a number that is a thousand times greater than the number of reported coronavirus-related deaths. So for every one person that died from coronavirus, a thousand people have lost their jobs. Is that a good trade-off? Well, we're all going to have a different answer to that question. But I bring it up because it's a question worth asking and then reflectively pondering the answer. And it seems to me that we could probably provide a little bit more of a moderate common sense response to what is admittedly a difficult situation with no clear obvious answers. One example, here in Michigan, the stay-at-home order has now been extended to April 30, and now that comes with even more restrictions. If you own two residences in the state of Michigan, you now are prohibited from traveling between the two. You can't legally leave your own private residence, get in your own private car, and travel to your other own private residence. How does that endanger anyone? Also, as part of the stay-at-home order, the governor has ordered large stores to close areas of the store that sell carpeting, flooring, furniture, plants, or paint. So if you are planning to plant a garden as part of your state-mandated quarantine, you better have already bought what you need. As the federal government eased the definition of essential workers, the state of Michigan clamped down. Landscapers, for example, are not essential, although they could easily comply with social distancing guidelines. Seems like these trade-offs may be extreme, and maybe defining a safe business rather than an essential business would be a better approach and maybe a better start. No doubt coronavirus is real and dangerous for many people, but the constraints now in place until the, until the end of April are too. Economic and financial devastation is everywhere. It affects millions, and it will intensify. And unfortunately, a $2 trillion stimulus package paid for with newly printed money won't fix the problem. The late Harry Brown, who was a libertarian thinker, best-selling financial author, newsletter publisher, and radio host said it best decades ago when he said, only government can break your legs, provide you with two crutches, and then proclaim, see, without me, you couldn't walk. Seems like come April 30, executive orders should stop and decisions moving forward should be done legislatively with input from those affected by all the issues 
with which we are currently dealing. Let your state senators and representatives know how you feel. That's my rant. I won't go there again. I'll be back to talk about things economic and financial in the next segment with Mr. Michael Pento. And let me remind you, if you're just joining me, that we do have a free informational webinar coming up at the end of this week on Thursday at 11 a.m. and a 4 p.m. webinar. You can go to rescueyourretirementwebinar.com to get more information or to register. And if you'd like to check out that link that I mentioned, uh, that will be posted tomorrow at Monday at 5 o'clock at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Michael Pento. Uh, Mr. Pento is the founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. I would encourage you to check out his work at pentoport.com. That's P-E-N-T-O-P-O-R-T, pentoport.com. And uh, Michael, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back on, Dennis. Hope you're doing well in these uh unusual times. Yeah, thank you. We certainly are in the same hope for you. Uh, you know, Michael, I want to give you uh, a quote, and we'll kind of keep our conversation to what's going on economically and financially. But I read a quote that said, crises like pandemic, pandemics don't break things in and of themselves. They show you what's already broken. Mm. Give me whether or not, uh, give me your take on whether or not you agree with that. I agree with it 100%. So I uh... I've been saying for quite some time that this is a problem that was brewing for a few years. We've had a record amount of corporate debt, about almost 50% of GDP. That was the nucleus of the next crisis would be the blow up in corporate debt. That's exactly what we see happening. You know, when you have a condition going into the crisis, Dennis, where 40% of all listed NYSE corporations did not make any money over the prior year, over the prior 12 months, and then going into this crisis, Everybody shuts down. The 90% of the world is shut down, and 10 million people have now become unemployed. The virus reveals the fact that you should not have 40% of all listed corporations in the red. So it was a catalyst. It was a, pr- a, a pin that pricked the bubble, but the bubble existed going into this. So, Michael, when you when you look at now some of the uh, extreme measures that are being taken and uh, in the stimulus package, uh, now it seems that we're essentially handing the keys to the printing press, to use that uh, metaphor, to the Treasury Department through the use of SPVs. The Treasury can borrow money from the Treasury to buy corporate bonds. Now, that's an extreme policy. Essentially, it seems like we're nationalizing part of the uh, the, the private uh, investment market. Uh, what's your take on that, and what, how does this play out? So, Dennis, first of all, I'm confused as to why the Federal Reserve actually needs any capital. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, <laughs> they can print money willy-nilly. All central banks, all fiat paper can be printed by a central bank. So, you know, they're a bankrupt, insolvent institution, highly, highly leveraged above any bank that was in, in existence prior to the Great Recession. So as to why, you know, the Fed could buy anything they want to, I mean, they have this time around buying investment grade corporate debt. And for the first time in the existence of the Federal Reserve since 1913, they are actually buying corporate debt in the primary market, meaning they're not just buying bonds that already existed. They're making loans to corporations and businesses out front in the primary market. 
In other words, what I'm saying to you is they're doing things now that they have never done in the past. You know, remember in 1913 when the Fed first got their charter from Congress, they were supposed to tinker around the edges of the discount window. In other words, if you were a bank and you needed a loan, you'd go to the discount window at a penalty rate. You bring your capital. You'd be charged a huge haircut for that. And hopefully you survive. Maybe you don't. But now the Fed is in the vanguard. They're out front making loans to businesses. You could go to the Fed without any existing collateral or capital and say, hey, I need a loan. So this is very, very unique in the world. We've never seen this before. And back, back to your question. So the Treasury wants to pretend that the Federal Reserve needs capital. That's great. But then the Federal Reserve is now an uh, award a, a, a a of the Treasury. The Treasury is now telling the Fed what to do. Here's some capital. Go out and leverage it up many, many times over and make loans to corporations. And if they default, you know what? The taxpayer's on the hook. Here's a, here's a point I want to make, though, and I hope I make this very clear. You know, I heard on CNBS today uh, <laughs> that once – once a central bank gets involved in these operations, global central banks, that they can sh – they have shown clearly, Dennis, that they can extricate themselves from the operation. And I, I almost fell off my chair. I, I, I couldn't believe what I heard. And this ties into your question. When was the last time a central bank was able to completely extricate itself for, from what they did in 2008 and 2009? I don't know of a single circumstance. So the ECB is at zero, never got off zero, and barely ended QE for like a month and had to get back in. The Bank of Japan never got off zero and never ended QE. The Federal Reserve ended QE, but here's a, here's a very crucial point. They got the 2.5% on the Fed funds rate and started to lower the rate. When, Dennis? Not because of the Wuhan virus. They were lowering the Fed funds rate in August of 2019. They went back into QE, although they didn't call it QE, in September of 2019. $60 billion a month of short-term treasury purchases. As to why they don't consider that you know, debt monetization, I have no clue. I really don't. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not buying long-term treasuries, not buying coupons. That somehow makes it okay, and it's not really debt monetization, even though they're buying $60 billion a month of short-term treasury bills. So this is, a, this is the fact. Once a central bank gets involved in the god-awful business of usurping markets, they never get out. So where's the Fed now? Back at zero and back into massive QE. Massive QE like we've never seen before. And Dennis, this is the first time in U.S. history, I believe, that we've ever done helicopter money to this extent. We are now sending checks to individuals bypassing the banking system. Now, perhaps, listen, this is, people are unemployed because of no fault of their own. That is a fact. And they do need assistance. But tell me why we went into, the, from the greatest economy the world has ever seen, from $1 trillion deficits to now having a national annual deficit in the United States of what I can calculate to be close to $4 trillion. 
or 20% of our, of our GDP, annual GDP. And, and Michael, when you, look at, when, yeah, when, you, when you look at those numbers, I mean, that's based on current GDP. I'm, I'm seeing some, some pretty <laughs> scary numbers here on what, what GDP contraction is going to be in oh. the second quarter of this year. Well, where do you oh, think you're that's going? about the denominator. Are you worried about the fictitious? I mean, like, you know, I, this is also reminds me of something you might hear on CNBS. So people say we're trading, and this is the truth, we're trading at 15 times 2021 earnings. Let's forget about 2020, even though we're just barely out of the first quarter. I mean, it's laughable. You should be laughing now. I mean, how could you possibly tell me what 2021 earnings are going to be? when you have no clue what 2020 earnings are going to be. So the denominators in all these equations, you know, P-E ratio, debt to GDP, nobody knows. You shut down the country for two months. We don't know when it's going to come back fully. We don't know if people are going to go to restaurants and start eating with a mask on their face. We don't know if the virus is going to come back in the fall. We don't know if it mutates. We don't know if we'll have a vaccine until probably sometime in the middle of 2021 that works. We don't know if there's a treatment yet that actually works. We just don't know a lot of things. Now, I hope and pray that we do have a treatment. We do have a vaccine. And the, the economy can start getting a footing. I believe it will. But when we start talking about let's write off 2020 and focus on 2021, people are, are, are talking about V-shaped recoveries, Dennis. How are you going to – how are you – tell me, please. How can the Federal Reserve or the ECB or the Bank of Japan or the PBOC, how can they ever step away from what they've started to do? We are going to have debt in this country. You say $4 trillion. I mean I say $4 trillion. Let's just look at that nominal number. Let's forget about the ratio. How is the Fed going to step away from monetizing all of that debt? We have $23.5 trillion right now. We're going to have close to $30 trillion when this all ends, at a minimum, in my opinion. And then the Fed is supposed to step away. And then what happens here's – th- here's one point, I, and I hope I can get this in. The Fed has manipulated all of the things they were doing before the, the, the virus hit. We now have a 10-year note trading at 0.7%, Dennis. If the Fed steps away from monetizing that debt, the average interest rate on the 10-year note is above 6% going back through history. So that's where the 10-year note would go. But then you have the, the inflation and insolvency concerns on top of that. So maybe it shouldn't be average. Maybe it should be closer to double digits, Dennis, without the help of the Federal Reserve. So if you go to 0.7 to over 7, what's that going to do to the real estate market? What's that going to do to the stock market? Basically, what I'm saying is the Fed is in. And they probably will never get out. And, and Michael, we've got about uh, three and a half minutes in this segment. So if we if we don't get this all in, we can pick it up in the next segment. But you mentioned a V-shaped recovery. And uh, when it comes to stocks, uh, when you take a look at the primary buyer of stocks since the Great Recession, mm-hmm. it's been corporate buybacks. Buy well, now, yeah. if you're taking money from the government, you, you, you can't use stock you can't you can't engage in stock buybacks not to mention the 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 publicity aspect of that that it probably doesn't look good so you know how low does this stock market go if these constraints stay in place if we see a 30 to 50 percent hit to gdp in the second quarter what happens to stocks 
Well, I have a model. So when you ask what happens to stocks, you know, I have a 20-point model that tells me where I should invest and when I should invest, what sectors best serve for my investors. So I don't make, you know, stupid predictions about, you know, what's the stock market going to do a year from now. N- nobody really knows. I mean, let's let's put it bluntly. Jerome Powell says that nothing is off the table. So the Fed, the only thing the Fed is not buying at this moment is junk bonds and stocks. They're actually buying corporate bond ETFs, if you could believe it. And I, as I said before, they make pri- they're actually making primary loans to businesses. So what if the Fed announced they're going to stop, stop, you know, start buying stocks and start buying junk bonds? I mean, you know, first of all, that's not a panacea. Let me tell you that. But that would give a more of a boost to the stock market, which I think, by the way, the stock market is going to go up much faster than the underlying economy. I think the the gap, the trenchant gap between Asset prices and the underlying economy is going to yawn much, much wider than it was before. And it was already enormous, absolutely enormous. So, Michael, do you think then that uh, that, that the market taking off will be a result of inflationary pressures? Is that how you see it? I see stagflation. I see, I see rampant stagflation. That's what, I, that's what I'm saying. I see you have a, production lines uh, have been cut off. Uh, this is a, a result of having the entire nation shut down and, in fact, the entire planet shut down for a couple of months. So all of these production lines have been shut down. I mean, Boeing, let's say, take, for example, it's up in my, my mind today. Boeing is up today, even though they announced that they stopped making airplanes. I mean, think about that for a second. Why is Boeing up when they just announced that they're not making any more airplanes? And the ones that they, they really want to make aren't approved yet to be manufactured. Well, that's because the Fed is buying everything that's not nailed down. And that, that to me, is a, a signal and a sign of massive stagflation. You're going to see um, unemployment spike, and you've, you're seeing it spike right now. Like I said, 10 million people fought for unemployment. We're going to get another figure on Thursday. I know this recording is done on Wednesday, but we should be close to 15 million people unemployed, newly unemployed people, unemployment rate above 10%. The underlying economy is is rotting and eroding. You know, we had a record number of zombie companies before the crisis. These companies are hopefully going to be kept alive. This is hopefully by the Federal Reserve kept alive. For what reason? These, you know, Joseph, Joseph Schumpeter, the economist, said very bluntly, "We need to have creative destruction." What is the creative destruction going on now when you're keeping zombie companies alive that can't even pretend they have a business any longer because they, their doors are closed? So I think we're going to have stagflation, asset prices rising, very low economic growth. But here's another point I want to make: just because you have a central bank that's purchasing everything, like the Bank of Japan has been doing, like the People's Bank of China has been doing, that is not a guarantee that you're going to record highs and zooming off from there. Don't forget, both of those markets are down about 50%. Japan is down 50% from where they were 30 years ago. And China peaked in 2007, despite having a communist dictator command and control economy. So it's not a panacea to say we are going to make everything okay by wrecking your currency and creating massive stagflation. That is not a recipe for success. 
Well, our guest today is Mr. Michael Pento. He is the founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. You can check out his work and his company at pentoport.com. I'll continue my conversation with Michael when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I am Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is Mr. Michael Pento. Uh, Michael is uh, founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. He is a returning guest to the program, and he is a uh, commentator on uh, many different uh, television programs on all things economic and financial. You can check out his work at pentoport.com. That's P-E-N-T-O-P-O-R-T.com. And, uh, Michael, let's just pick up where we left off in the last segment uh, the Fed, as you said, is buying everything, it seems, that's not, that's not nailed down. And obviously, they're just creating money to do that. At what point do we have a tipping point where, where we see massive inflation and you know, the, the dollar still is used in a lot of international lending? Where is the tipping point and what does that look like for our average person who's aspiring to just a comfortable, stress-free retirement? Mm, okay, so it's going to be a long answer, so I hope you don't mind. We have 12 so, minutes. <laughs> so let's just talk about what happened in the last crisis. We had a, a huge spike in the price of gold in the last crisis, coming out of the last crisis. Um, but then around 2011, 2012, gold collapsed in, in value. And it did it for a few reasons. And let me tell you why I think this time's a little bit different. This current greater recession or even depression, it's actually a depression, let's be honest, is going to be different. So like I said in the last segment, we are we are now doing something we have never done before, which is mass helicopter money. And as I also proved in the last segment, once a central bank gets used to doing something, usurps the market and supplants it with helicopter money or QE or, Z, or ZERP, zero interest rate policies, they can't really extricate themselves from that. So in the Great Recession, 2000, uh, December 2007 through J to June 2009, the Fed mostly rescued banks. That's exactly what they're for. You know, they're not really more as much concerned about you or the public. They are there. They're created to save banks. So what the Fed did was print money, new money, and took all of those bad assets off banks' balance sheets. You know, remember the mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, all this stuff was to take assets that were re really uh, you know, highly toxic and insolvent, take them off of banks' balance sheets and give them cash. And it's called Fed credit. So that cash sits on the uh, banks' balance sheets and it's parked at the Federal Reserve as credit, basically cash. And the banks were told, well, maybe they'll lend it. Hopefully you can lend it, but if you don't, you don't. But I'm keeping you afloat. I'm keeping your balance sheet whole because I'm taking all these bad assets off your balance sheet. That's what happened in 2008. And what happened was what banks did is said, oh, I have all this cash. I mean, the consumer is soaked in debt. I really can't start making loans to uh, businesses and households to buy more homes. Um, I'm going to speculate in the stock market and in the bond market. So you take a bond from me, you give me cash, I'll go and buy stocks. I'll go and buy bonds. I'll buy mortgage-backed securities. I'll buy asset-backed securities. And that's what happened for many, many years. So we had massive asset price inflation, but inflation didn't really trickle down to the consumer because they were debt-saturated and they weren't really in the mood to take on a lot of new debt because they were, they were saturated in debt. So what happened is you had 
<clears throat> you know, stocks went to record highs. The economy kind of trick, you know, kind of limped along at around a two percent annualized growth rate. But the stock market boomed, and then we had at the peak, the stock market was one and a half times underlying economy. That has never happened before. The closest proximity to it was in March of 2000, when the Nasdaq and the and the stocks were around one 145 percent of underlying GDP. So let's talk about what happened now. So you had like a zombified economy, but you had massive increase in asset price inflation. This time around, they are doing something different. They are not, yes, of course, they are buying all the asset-backed securities, the loans. Uh, they're doing commercial paper, uh, money market relief. They're buying treasuries. They're doing all of that they did before to rescue banks. But in addition, in addition to that, they are providing enhanced unemployment insurance and, for the first time, sending checks directly to individuals. So in that regard, it's different because it's not just creating asset price inflation, but it's also going to trickle down to consumer price inflation. Because as I talked about in the last segment, you have all these supply chains that have been uh, distressed and broken around the world, so you have shortages you know, just go into your local store and try to find some kind of paper products or, or cleaning fluid, even some meat and, uh, and, and whatnot, fish. There's not a lot out there right now. There's just, it's very, very supply constrained. Yet you're going to have people with mon- new money, people who are unemployed. Get, get this. People who are unemployed are going to make more than they were before they were laid off. And by the way, we are paying businesses, we're printing money and paying businesses to keep employees on their payrolls. I've never done that before. So businesses are getting direct money. And those same people who never got laid off are going to also receive checks in the mail. So you're getting the money supply, not only just the base money supply, which I talked about before in 2008, which is called Fed Credit. Uh, you're getting the broader aggregates to rise too. You're getting money directly into the population. That's stagflation. That's exactly what we're going to experience. Um, but you, let's talk about why that affects the currency to answer your question. So uh, the Fed's balance sheet, as you all recall, recall the Fed's balance sheet went from, went from around $800 billion in 2007, start of 2008, to four and a half trillion dollars. And we were told very clearly by uh, Bernanke, Yellen, that this was temporary in nature. <laughs> exactly. And we were, going to, we were going to be able to skillfully and almost unnoticeably unwind the balance sheet back to where it was, close to where it was, maybe back to one and a half, two trillion dollars. So we're going to sell two and a half trillion dollars of uh, the Fed's balance sheet, which is the stuff that they bought, all that crap that they've owned, which supposedly was all healed, you know, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities. And we were going to be able to raise interest rates. And by the way, while gold was collapsing under this guise of, of pretend uh, normalcy, return to normalcy, um, we also had annual deficits plunge from $1.5 trillion back down to, you know, in the hundreds of billions. It plunge. It, it, it fell a 
uh, not, not anywhere near back to where it was, but it, they did contract. So then people started, hey, this, is a te- this was temporary. The Fed was right. We, we're going back to normal here. We're going to really suck up that base money supply, reduce it, and we're going to reduce our deficits and we're going to return to normal. Well, that's done. That's gone. The Fed's balance sheet isn't going to be $4.5 trillion. It's going to be closer to $10 trillion. And that's just by and the end of this never, year. And it's, yeah, yeah, right. And it's never going to shrink. It's going to go higher from there, as I was going to say. So, you know, what, what are we, the owners, and it's not, by the way, it's not just the dollar losing value against the yen. Uh, the, the, you know, people aren't going to flock to the yen or the euro as much as they're going to flock to precious metals because you cannot tell anybody any longer that you're going to return to normal. That's over. That's over and done with. Deficits are absolutely surging. The Fed's balance sheet is surging like never before. And you cannot pretend any longer that things will ever go back to normal. You can say maybe in the future we'll stop increasing the balance sheet, which I think is a lie. But you can't say we're going to ever go down another dark alley called quantitative tightening and take away the money supply. That's never going to happen, Dennis. So that's why I think faith in fiat currencies is burning. And there is, by the way, a threshold in the Fed's balance sheet. I don't know what that number is. I have no clue because inflation is psychology. It's not an increase in the money supply because you, how do you define money supply increase? Is it base money supply? Is it M1, M2, M3? When you come down to it, inflation is about when the consumer or when the market loses confidence in the purchasing power of a currency. And that comes from its dilution. That's usually how it is engendered. But what, at what point do people look around and say, oh, look at the Fed's balance sheet? Look at the amount of debt and deficits that they're monetizing. Look at the fact that they can't get out of the support, uh, the supporting of investment-grade bonds, which has put junk bonds back into a, bo- a, a massive bull market. At what point do they say, hey, I no longer trust our central bank, and I am just going to buy hard assets, you know, farmland, real estate, and precious metals and energy? Primarily, and Michael, we've got about two minutes left. Um, it seems to me that you know I've been talking about getting tangible uh, on the radio program here for a long time, and it seems like that now is, is it, <laughs> that's got to be the message. If you can get tangible, mm. yeah. But I, I've always said, Dennis, that you need to have five percent of your net worth in physical gold that you don't have to rely on anybody else, no third party to get in your possession. That is what you should do. So you shouldn't just get you know physical gold. Gold is very very heavy, but very very dense. You can you can store you know hundreds hundreds of thousands of dollars of gold in a very small area. So get your gold, store it in a place that you can get access to physically yourself, and does not re- rely on a third party. If you can get it, by the way, you can't get silver, you can't get gold right now. It's you you can't get it. So when that window opens up jump through it because I don't know if it's ever going to or how long it's going to stay open. I really don't. Yeah, I agree. You know, our guest today has been Mr. Michael Pento. He is the founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies, and uh, you can learn more about his work at pentoport.com. 
Michael, uh, can't believe how fast two segments went no, by. Uh, w- would love to have you back down the road here. I appreciate your perspective and, uh, and opinion very much, and I know the listeners appreciate it as well. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dennis. Take care. Stay safe. We will return after these words. This is the RLA Radio Show. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. And thanks again to Mr. Michael Pento for joining me on today's program. You know, when we start talking about what's going on in the economy, it's impossible to ignore the elephant in the room. And that is that money creation by the Federal Reserve just continues to intensify. As of April 1, the Fed's balance sheet hit nearly $6 trillion and went up more than a half a trillion dollars in just one week. The Fed officially revived the quantitative easing or money printing program on March 13. And since that time, over the last few weeks, the Fed has printed approaching $2 trillion. Now, money creation at this pace may mean that my projection of a $10 trillion Fed balance sheet at year end will even be low, as incredible as that might seem. Now, this is not a new phenomenon in response to the coronavirus situation. That's definitely not the case because back in September of 2019, as I reported on this program, the Fed began printing massive amounts of money to prop up the repo market, which is the overnight lending market between banks. And we have talked about that on the program. Now, the coronavirus situation obviously was not predictable, but the eventual outcome of this Fed policy has been completely predictable. Shortly after mid-September, when the Fed started printing money to prop up the repo market, this is what I wrote in my weekly newsletter. There is currently a grand experiment taking place. Policymakers are trying to determine how far below zero yields can actually fall. My take is that on a global basis, Yields can continue to fall for a little while yet, but the bottom can't be far away. When the bottom hits and investors panic, that may very well be the catalyst that drives stocks and bonds lower. Obviously, what I didn't know at the time was the coronavirus situation. Now, at that point, the policy response I wrote may be more money creation, and that is exactly what's happening And since that is a real possibility, owning some tangible assets like precious metals would be a good idea. Now, in my view, we are now on our way to the bottom. The Fed is pulling out all the stops to attempt to reflate the bubble. But given the numbers, they may be able to reflate it some. But it's my firm conviction that they will fail. At best, they may delay the inevitable for a brief period of time. And I come to this conclusion simply because history teaches us that massive money creation schemes always end badly. What about stocks? Are stocks going to bounce back? This is a topic of conversation that I've had with many potential clients over the past several weeks. And frankly, I'm surprised at the level of bullishness that still exists as far as stocks are concerned. What's important to understand about stocks is that the biggest purchasers of stocks since the financial crisis have been the companies that issued the stock in the first place. 
In other words, stock buybacks have been just have been the primary driving force behind the bull market since the financial crisis. Now, John Malden has a terrific weekly newsletter that he calls Thoughts from the Frontline. I would encourage you all to read it. He had this to say on the topic. He said, the stock market had a rough first quarter, but the second one might not be much better and it could be worse. More than a few traders expect a quick recovery once the virus is under control. Many expect the various Fed injections and stimulus programs to drive asset prices higher in late 2020. Mr. Malden says, I have my doubts. He says, in order for prices to rise, and this is just some common sense, that market needs to have, one, willing buyers, and two, these willing buyers have to have cash to spend. And he asks, who is going to fill that role? Since the financial crisis, the primary stock buyer has been the listed companies themselves via their stock repurchase program. Their net purchases dwarf all others. And in his newsletter, Mr. Malden included a chart that shows that by far the vast majority of stock purchases since the Great Recession have come as part of stock buyback programs. He concludes, this is a problem for stock bulls because the main buyer is suddenly leaving the scene. One reason is political pressure. It's a bad look to be rewarding shareholders when the country is in such dire straits. But that aside, many companies are already highly leveraged and, with recession looming, need to conserve their cash and borrowing power. Buybacks are not a priority. On top of that, the CARES Act, which is the stimulus package, restricts buybacks from companies receiving federal loans loan guarantees from the federal government, or other assistance. That means buybacks will likely be scarce for a while, and stock prices may have a hard time rising unless some other large buyer appears. Bull markets require people willing to buy. Bear markets develop simply in the absence of buyers. Now, I certainly agree with Mr. Malden. I think it's going to be very, very difficult for stocks to rise uh, to prior levels. Those who are forecasting a V-shaped recovery from this, um, I would certainly disagree with. For those of you that would like to learn more, remember, nobody cares as much about your money as you do. And because of that, we have some educational resources that we have available for you. First of all, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can sign up for the weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. Uh, that is delivered every Monday at 5. Uh, when the podcast version of this program is also posted, uh, so if you'd like to go back and listen to the interview with Michael Pento or either of the other two segments, uh, you can visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com tomorrow and do so. Also, we have coming up uh, this Thursday two webinars, uh, one at 11 a.m., one at 4 p.m., on which we will share with you a tool that we believe will be really important for many people to consider using as we move through this developing economic situation. Uh, that tool is revealed on the webinar. We give you some strategies that you can consider 
Uh, the webinar is educational. There will not be any offer to purchase financial products. You can get more information about the webinar or register while capacity remains at rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. Please, if you have already attended the webinar, please refrain from registering again. Let someone who has not yet attended uh, get the information. Well, that's about all the time I have for this week uh, in these uh, interesting and frightening times in which we live. Uh, We wish you the best and uh, blessings for a happy Easter. I'll be back again next week.